This is a Radio.com original. My Uncle Mark went to a, a police auction, and he bought a police crown Vic. <laughs> you know, okay, he sounds so more and more like his character on TV. <laughs> oh, no, this is the best. So he's got to do that trek to Valencia for work every morning. He gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's got to drive out there in traffic. And, and he went to the police auction, got his crown Vic, and he says that his biggest joy is actually getting in the fast lane in the morning. And people see him in the rearview mirror, and they pull over because they think it's a cop car. <laughs> and then when he's driving by, he sees the look on their face when they do a double take. Says it's Gibbs <laughs> driving past him in a cop car. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the Talking About Cars podcast, where, of course, it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities and others in the car industry. I'm Randy Cardoon, and this week, our own Hot Rod Bob Beck joins me live. Live! That's your cue. That was your cue. I am. Okay. I'm alive. Okay, good. Good to know. (laughs) Yeah, this time around, of course, with everything that's happened over the last few weeks, months, whatever, I I felt it was prudent to bring Mr. Beck on and so we could get an update as to what's been going on. Because I'll I'll be honest, we kind of did a lot of these interviews and we did them in advance so we would be able to use them later and, and set them up and broadcast later because we have sometimes we go to these shows or we see things at event see people at events and uh, you know by the time we're done talking to them we have all these interviews that last but this is one of the weird occasions where normally we're kind of fessing up because so much has happened over the last few weeks um Bob, this whole thing with the virus and all that, how, how are you guys doing? You're located in the palatial uh, Hot Rod Bob Beck Estates in, mm. up in Ventura County? Yeah. So, well, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of strange. Uh, as you know, I'm involved in, in the car hobby and the business. So the car hobby and the business have pretty much come to a standstill. Uh, no racing. I'm not working my regular job, and many of the jobs that I had lined up for the rest of this year have been canceled or delayed. And as far as the car hobby aspect of it, out of the five or six car clubs that I belong to, none of them are having meetings anymore. Nope. So, you know, we're stuck at home. I I did some work on the cars, but without working, I'm not going to spend the money. No, I understand that. You know, we're we're stuck with, okay, that's as far as the car is going to get for now. And later in the year, we'll work on the other things. So this has really had a, uh, a substantial effect on us. And even my wife works in the auto industry, and her business has been shut down. So we're both, you know, I've, I had to go down to the couch, and I saw this cute little blonde sitting there, and I figured I'd introduce myself, and it was my wife. Hello! <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a good thing, too. Uh, that would have been awkward yeah. if, if it wasn't. You'd have some explaining to do. Um, oh, yes. And, of course, the shows, they're no longer really on. Uh, we're talking about uh, Spring Fling, the big Chrysler show uh, in uh, Van Nuys out at the uh, 
rec center out there on uh, Woodley Drive there. Uh, the, the big two-day spring fling, that's done for this year. They're going to push it, and hopefully we're going to have a fall fling at the rate things are going. So many car shows that are just getting thrown to the side. And I, well, one thing I find interesting is a lot of people are actually – Doing what I call improv car shows, like, for example, I'd go check my mail at a a nearby P.O. box place, and there'd be a couple of guys with Corvettes or a couple of guys with Porsches and and, uh, maybe some other car, you know, and just kind of hanging out, and there's like four guys. Yeah, and and they're the rebels. Uh, I was kind of joking. We saw a photograph the other day of Donut Derelicts, which is a, a place people gather on Saturday mornings, very early in the morning, and usually the parking lot is full. This last weekend, there were 10, 15 cars, and they were all one car parking spot apart. So they were keeping their social distance. And we kind of joked about having a, a, a cruise night where everyone stayed in their cars. <laughs> You know, so we can keep our social distance, but still have our car events to an extent and, and be somewhat sociable. And then, like we're doing, get on the phone and talk to each other. You may be in the next car over, but you're conversing because you're you're on the phone. Right. Well, are we allowed to roll up the windows or keep them down? Well, we'd have to keep the windows up because, you know, that if you sneezed or coughed, it could travel 10 feet. Yeah. the width of a car spot. So you keep the windows up and, you know, air conditioning on if you've got it. Although it's been cool enough, we really don't need it. Yeah, true, lately. and uh, so no, not at all. On this edition of the Talking About Cars podcast, I-, I think one of the better interviews we've ever had because Gunnar Nelson— The Mm -hmm. son, one of the sons of the late Ricky Nelson, one of the twins that uh, had the group Nelson. And uh, he is a car guy, a definite car guy. Yeah, definitely, definitely hardcore. And we were talking with him and, you know, he is just as car crazy as you and I are. And it's not something you would necessarily think of that way. You don't think of his dad or or anyone else in his family as being a car person. And he even said that his his grandfather, you know, other than driving cars, it was as close as they got to it. Yeah. Uh, remember, this guy has a, a family background that goes both, uh, both sides of the family. You've got Ozzie and Harriet Nelson, his grandparents, Ricky and David Nelson. Ricky's his dad. And his uh, uncle was David Nelson. His uncle... On the other side, his mom's brother, uh, Mark Harmon, from yeah. NCIS, and his dad and his grandfather on that side of the family, the legendary Tom Harmon, old ninety-eight from the University of Michigan, was a sportscaster here in Southern California for many years. So, there was all sorts of directions we could go with this. And I will tell you this: Gunner was so great. We are going to have two editions with him, and we cover everybody. <laughs> yeah, we do. And, you know, and I'm I'm hoping. To an extent, you know, that this clears up, it, it runs its course, and we get back to events. Uh, Gunner, as we spoke with him, lives in Nashville. That's right. And and we were talking with him. Hopefully the uh, National Hot Rod Reunion gets off the ground like it's supposed to, Father's Day weekend. And I'm hoping, I invited him up. I'm Fingers hoping crossed. he show up. Yeah. Oh, he'll show up. If it happens, yeah. he'll show up. I get a feeling if it happens, he'll show up. Now, I'm trying to remember one of the first things we asked him. We were talking about John Force. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember. I guess what we were talking about was families 
of people that are car people that go through, you know, the transition. And I believe it was John Force and his daughters. And, of course, he has grandkids who are now doing junior drags. Right. So we had a chance to ask Gunner what he knew about John Force and the silly question of the interview, if he knew who John Force was. Um, are you kidding me? Come on, guys. Raise the bar a little bit. Yes. Okay. We, okay. This was a not, test. Not only is he like the fastest man alive, but he's got the fastest daughters alive, and they're all hot, of course. Yes. Okay. Oh, good. See, we, we never assume intelligence. Yes. I, I got it. Okay. So, yeah. yes. Okay. So, basically, John Force, his daughters are good-looking and drive, and he tells us his grandkids are driving junior drags. You are the grandson of Ozzie Nelson, who's into music. Rick Nelson, your dad, the late Rick Nelson, was into music. And you guys are into music. Well, I mean, more, more so than that. I mean, I think that the parallel, I mean, thank you. It's a very flattering parallel. I mean, the family business is the family business. But, you know, it was really cool having the kind of social proof that we had when we were growing up that you could look around, you look down the hall, look across the room and see people doing what it is you want to do when you grow up at the highest of levels. To us, it was possible. And I'm sure it's the same thing when you do have a family business. I'm sure if you talk to the Mannings, they would say the same thing. It's just what they did, you know, and it was just kind of expected of you. It wasn't like you were consciously going, man, I've got to raise the bar for myself and I've got to, I've got to perform at the top, at the, at the peak of my, my abilities. It's just kind of, it was natural, it was normal, it's what you did, and it's what you loved. And I think that you're always better, no matter who you are and what you do, you're always better at the things that you love to do, that you're passionate about. And as long as I can remember, my brother and I have wanted to make music, and, uh, you know, our, our, we're not just into music, and our father was into music, and our grandfather, we're actually in the Guinness Book, it's the only family with three generations of number one hit makers in it. Wow. Uh, Ozzy Nelson had a big band, and had a number one in 1935. Uh, our father sold half a billion singles in his career and and had uh, hello mary lou and traveling man actually his um his song uh, uh traveling man was the first number one on the billboard hot 100 charts when the chart was invented uh, wow. that particular week my brother and i had a had a couple of our own too which was pretty cool but when we were talking about the forces i mean uh, those those girls were playing in the pits their entire lives they were building engines and hanging out in the garage and you know, their toys, I'm sure, were, you know, gears and cogs, and that's just kind of what they did. And, uh, I mean, obviously, what we do is far less less dangerous and hazardous. I mean, those the, the, the forces are just really, really, uh, really brave people, and they are, they're amazing at what they do. And I bet you they would say you're brave for getting in front of an audience like they like you do and sing. Yeah, they don't get in front well, of an audience. They like don't you do that. Do. No. Oh, well, they do. Well, I mean, I, I got a chance cars. to hang out with both Joe and Joe Amato and Don the Snake Prudhomme. We did the the Toyota the Grand Prix of Long Beach, the Toyota Grand Prix, uh, once upon a time, and it was really great because we got to hang out with the celebs that particular year. We all went to the Skip Barber uh, class up there at Willow Springs, and when we're hanging out there in the desert with the tumbleweeds. We just did, did kind of like an impromptu uh, nightclub act. There was a local place up there, and my brother and I sang a couple of songs. We had um, we had Tim. We hadn't. He didn't even have tool time at the at that point. That's how uh, how he actually caught the bug. And mm-hmm. and we had both Joe Amato and Don Prudhomme in that in that class there for that race. And hearing those guys describe what being in a top fuel drag car was like was so funny. I mean, I can't even repeat it. I, I'm not sure if I can on this, but he said, okay, you know, this is great. So he says, I want you to imagine you're in the car, and this is all great. You're in your fire suit, and you're in the helmet, your balaclava, 
You've got, it sounds like, you know, thunder around you. It's incredibly loud. It's great. The light turns green. You go hammer down. Now, I want you to imagine taking your butthole, and you didn't say butthole, <laughs> and yeah. basically inverting your body to where the top of your head goes through your ass. That's yeah. what it feels like taking off in a top fuel dragster. And these guys just did it as a matter of course. I mean, to them, setting world records was just another Wednesday. Well, you know? Exactly. And, and, and to I mean, top it off. It's incredible. And, in, and to top it off, in the, the hot rod final at the Winter Nationals this year, uh, John Force went 332 miles an hour and lost. Is that insane? Or is that insane? It's wonderful, though. I mean, oh, it it's is. really cool because it's really honestly kind of one of those great uh, uh, the, those great examples of the human spirit and what is possible. I mean, imagine this: thirty years ago, you know, you would just say, "Absolutely, it's not possible. You can't keep the car on the ground. There's no way something can travel on tires that fast and it, without it being strapped to a, a sidewinder." Which is really cool because we were actually in that same class there. We were talking with uh, with Paul Newman's uh, stunt double, Stan Barrett who was billed as the fastest man alive for a long, long time. And it was great because he set the record of the Budweiser car there on the Bonneville Salt Flats. And he said, man, that was fast enough. Okay, we we did the pass, then we did the second pass. And because the first pass wasn't fast enough, I had the bright idea of strapping a couple of Sidewinder missiles to the side of that car. (laughs) And so we just got up to speed. And just when you didn't think you could humanly go any faster, I popped the Sidewinders, and I I can't even tell you guys what that felt like. Well, have now, you ever had a chance that to get? That is awesome, isn't it? Did you ever think of getting into a dragster? Uh, Jack Beckman, who beat John Forrest this last weekend, is an instructor or has been an instructor for uh, the driving school down at Fontana. And he had 333 miles an hour. Yeah. That's how close it was. It's ridiculous. Look, I've been asked to, to actually drag in a, in a couple of cars in the past, and it's really nice actually doing what it is I do because it, a lot of times it's actually helped us feed our racing Jones. I mean, Matthew and I, anything that, that we can race, we do. Uh, we've done everything from uh, Formula Fords to Legends cars to Indy Lights um, and had a great time doing open wheel. We really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fast. I'm like stroke race, either crash or win. Matthew is actually <laughs> more talented than I am. He actually legitimately could have been a professional race car driver if he wanted to. Um, and so many of those people that come from entertainment got their first taste of racing and caught the bug racing by doing the the celebrity race in uh, Long Beach at the Grand Prix. How did you get the and, bug to cars? Well, you know, honestly, it's just kind of one of those things. I remember when I was a kid, you know, it was, it was, there were a couple of things that I was really attracted to. I, I obviously loved music, and my dad was doing his Stone Canyon band, as the first, arguably the first country rock band. Uh, he pushed my cribs aside and, and was actually rehearsing in our bedroom. So we were always around music. We were always around loud amps and drums and all that, and we just loved it. That was really cool. But our dad was also a car guy. It seemed like every week he was showing up with something that our mother made him sell because it was too loud or fast. <laughs> and, and I just really, really loved it. I loved the visceral experience of being next to uh, usually an American engine and, and the way that made me feel. And it's kind of one of those things. That I, I think it's kind of like, it's like riding a Harley, guys. You know how it is. If you have to explain it, they wouldn't understand. Right. You know, you're, mm-hmm. either, you're either a car guy or a car girl. You're the car person or you're not. It's one or the other. There's no real gray area, you know, and I've got plenty of friends who really don't get the Jones that Matthew and I have for automobiles. And someone explained it to me. I, it was really kind of cool because now I'm going through this phase where, you know, I've, I've, I just sold, uh, I had a C7 
uh, Corvette Z06 convertible with the, the Z07 package on it. And that was honestly the finest car I've ever owned in my life. And also, uh, an exercise in frustration. I only sold the vehicle because I literally couldn't get it out of first gear without exceeding the national speed limit yeah. in every state of the union. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I mean, for, for real. I mean, this is a car that does 206 miles an hour, honestly. And uh, and it was really a, a truly amazing car. And if you turn off all the, the electronic help on it, you could get yourself in trouble. And I, I've done a lot of seat time in race cars. And I can tell you that car is, is really overqualified for the street unless you are Randy Prost or something like that and you actually really know how to drive. And I've been going through this uh, this 50s kick. So you know, I bought a couple of vintage trucks and I've been restoring those this week and, and I've been having a really good time with the style thing. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of uh, throughout my life, you know, I've always coveted these cars that have driven by and thought, you know, one day when I grow up, if I catch a lick, I'm going to buy that. And I've been really blessed because throughout the years, you know, you buy, you sell, you trade, uh, you hold some that you love. But I really honestly do believe that the, really, the thing that really kind of set in stone our love for cars was our father had a 1973 De Tomaso Pantera L. And that was his ride. And our dad was not a materialistic guy at all. He really wasn't. He, he was really more of a, a spiritual guy. He was very simple. You give him a Snickers bar a Mexican Coke and, a, and an acoustic guitar, and he was happy. My he man. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, the day he drove by, he said he, I was, he was on the way to the studio in 1973, and he was in the San Fernando Valley and drove by Mayberry Lincoln Mercury right up right there on, uh, on Vineland. And right there in the showroom was the first Pantera anybody had ever seen in the area. And he fell in love with the car. And that was truly a love affair from that day until the end of his life. The only physical thing our father genuinely loved was that Pantera. It was a red Pantera. And for those out there that don't know what that is, research it. The market's gone through the roof this last year, which is crazy. Um, there are a lot of great things about that car. The style of the car was decades ahead of their time and, cl and so classic that it looks contemporary today. Beautiful Gia-designed, wedge-shaped uh, Italian car that a uh, former race car driver, Alessandro De Tomaso, actually came up with a car company, much like DeLorean or Shelby or any of those guys. And his take on it, he wanted to do an Italian body with an American V8 in it. It had a beautiful ZF transaxle. There were a lot of things that were great. The sound of the 351 Cleveland in that car was truly automotive music. It is the most beautiful sounding car in the world. And when Matthew and I were living uh, at the family house, our dad would come home from the studio at night, and that car would rumble into the garage that was right underneath the bedroom that Matthew and I shared. And the garage door would close, the car would shut off, and the whole house would, would rumble when it came in and vibrate the beds and all that. And Matthew and I would know that our father was safe and he was home <laughs> and all was well with the world. So it was really kind of that that did it. You know, seeing our father connect with that particular car, and he owned a lot of cars, a lot of Shelbys, uh, a lot of Mopars. He, he really loved it. He uh, he actually did some midget racing when he was a teenager, which uh, was pretty funny. He the story. I mean, Grandpa Ozzy was uh, running the family television show, and our dad was really the showrunner on that show, keeping our family uh, wonderfully employed and the fourteen you know people in the crew and their families 
happy and employed for over 15 years. And so there were a couple clauses in the ABC contract. One was a morals clause, and the other was one of those those things where they they wouldn't insure you in any way if you did anything that was uh, life uh, you know uh, life threatening. So. You know, our dad was kind of a daredevil, anyways, and he was bored working on that TV show for 14 years. So he got uh, he got some hobbies along the way, and one was midget racing. And the problem with our father is he was actually really, really good at pretty much everything he picked up. He'd get bored with it real quick because he'd master it too fast. And racing was no different. He got into midget cars uh, out in Riverside, and he won his first through his tenth race. And that it was all in the, in the first. It was over the, the weekend and stuff. And then Monday rolls around. And there is a big picture in the in the Los Angeles Times with the winner of the race. Row, row. That yeah, and uh, you know our dad was seen out of his helmet for the first time, and Ozzy was reading the family paper in the in the kitchen, and thus ended our father's racing career. But um, <laughs> you know he, he had to do what we all have to do, which is just kind of get reminded. Look, doing track time is amazing; it's so much fun. But if you have a little element of that in your life, that's great. Look, I, I, you know, as a side note here, uh, I hang out with car people. Um, I, I, I married a car girl. Um, my kids are into them, too, because it's nice to see that that Jones gets passed on through through generations. Uh, I see a lot of my, I mean, I've got three, three beautiful daughters, uh, 13, uh, 15, and 19. And they just absolutely love everything to do with, with my car, Jones, and, and all that. And they also have friends that, I mean, I, I don't want to understand what this is like. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait to get my license. I don't know if you guys are any different. Oh, no. Oh, but the, oh, the second, no. I mean, I was sitting there waiting at the DMV on my 16th birthday when it opened to take my test and get my license. Man, there are kids nowadays with Uber and stuff. They don't even, they don't even care. They don't want to learn how to drive. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But my kids are going to know how to drive stick. They're going to go to kart racing school. Uh, they're going to do all of that stuff and be highly overqualified. Kind of brings uh, a tear. With, kind of brings a tear to my eyes, don't yes, you think, Bob? Uh, a, a man who wants to bring up his kids right. You know I, what I mean? I, I, yes, and shifting. Oh, I say, it's, I say this is what they call a manual transmission, a millennial uh, security device. Yeah, it's anti theft device. Yes, exactly. So yeah, they, they, they look at it and they just kind of go, "What is that?" And my kids know how to drive stick, and, <laughs> yeah. it's, and it's cool, you know. But it's like uh, it, it's uh, it was described to me about a week ago by somebody we were having a conversation i've uh, just got a new 56 uh big window f100 delivered and and it's just like my favorite physical thing now i love it and i was talking to somebody car at the local cars and coffee and he was talking about about an ex-girlfriend of his and he said you know i i, I had to dump her because she wasn't into cars i said well you know a lot of women aren't into, into cars i mean not to yeah. be sexist and you know, I mean, aside from the fact that David Lee Roth is my pa- patron saint, um, I said, I, that's, that's kind of a common thing. And he goes, well, I realized this in the process of that relationship ending. Um, if people do not understand the romance of classic cars, they don't understand romance in general. Interesting. It's, it's not some, and, and I really, I kind of thought of that. About, it's really wise, but it's really true. When I look back in my life, anybody I'd, I'd ever been with, that wasn't into cars, they also weren't into romance either. They didn't think it was important. And to me, that is the juice of life. It's everything. That whole, that whole thing about music and food and, and everything about cars, it's what makes life worth living to me. You know, it's not about the destination. It's about getting there. 
and having fun doing it. All right, so you know, let's I, so let's go back. You mentioned your uh, wife's a car girl. How yep. did you find a car girl? How did you guys run into each other? Well, it, it was just kind of a natural thing. She actually showed up with um, my now my whole family um, at a at a gig uh, in the middle of nowhere in the California desert. So halfway between. Uh, it's in Ontario, California, halfway between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. It's where the tumbleweeds go out to to hang out and go on vacation. Absolutely. And uh, and I was in the middle of nowhere, and they all showed up, and it was really cool. And as a matter of fact, in our first conversation that we had that particular night, because I couldn't keep my eyes off her, uh, we started talking about cars. And that's kind of one of my my litmus test questions on a first date. I, I, I have to test the waters, and it's kind of you can learn a lot of things about about a person. And so I said, okay. If you, if I gave you a magic wand, you can have any car in the world. What would you want? And without missing a blink, she looks at me. She said, "A 1977 Bandit Trans Am with T-tops and a manual transmission." <laughs> All and I right. Thought, okay, this is love. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Did she get it? Yeah, uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, my brother got it. She drives it all the time because I also found too in my car. You know, the only thing better than owning a car is having friends that do. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. So one of the other trucks that you have, and and there's a great little uh, piece of video of you guys on your big trip to North Dakota on your Twitter feed. Talk a little about that, the trip to to North Dakota. And the one thing I noticed is you had mentioned the Chevy truck is your high school car now is it really your high school car or was it like the one you had in high school no it's like the one the 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 one that i actually drove in high school great story behind this uh i I always wanted to uh you know again like i was saying i I had to get a car because it wasn't just it wasn't just fun and transportation it was survival things were tough at my house at that time our parents were divorced our mom uh, was dabbling in the in the wild turkey at the time, and so getting out of the house was really kind of important to us. Plus, we were playing the LA clubs all over the place at the time, and I needed something to move our our gear. I was a drummer at the time, and it's fairly gear intensive. And right around that time, I was 15 or so. My uncle Mark, who is uh, Gibbs on NCIS, Mark Harmon, uh, also has a, a thing for cars. His thing was was older cars, and he's one of those guys that. He, when he restores a car, it's got to be bone stock, how it left the factory. I mean, he's a guy that romanticizes a six-volt system in a car <laughs> and stuff, and he doesn't want anything changed. So uh, our uncle had uh, been working on a TV show at the time, and he was in Montana, and he happened upon a 1953 five-window Chevy half-ton pickup truck. And we're talking farm equipment, you know, and three on the tree, power nothing. That thing and when he found this thing, it was sitting. Uh, I think it was a shop truck for somebody, and man, it had been beaten up. It was full of bondo. Uh, someone had welded a utility bumper to the back, dents everywhere, but no rust, and the engine was strong. No leaks. The engine was strong, and no rust. But it just looked horrible. Everything about it was horrible. But all the all the things were pretty much there. And so he drove it over to our house there in the Pacific Palisades around that time, and I fell in love with it. I just thought it was really cool. Um, I think I fell in love the first time he tried to reverse out of the driveway because it didn't have synchro mesh, so it grinds in first and reverse. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, man, that's really cool. And so we <laughs> talked about it, and uh, and I talked about it so much. Every time I, I saw my Uncle Mark, I brought up that truck, and he said, well, you know, um, let's make a deal. I'll sell the, I'll sell the truck to you for 1300 bucks." That's going to be my price. It's what I got into it. And, you know, to a kid in 1983 uh, who was delivering pizzas at the time, that was a fortune. 
you know. Um, but he said, we'll, we'll, we'll do a deal here. I'll sell you the truck, and you take care, in auto shop, you take care of all the wiring, the mechanicals. You get it safe and sound, and you fix it up as best you can to where you can't do any more of the internals. I'll take care of the cosmetics. I thought that was a great deal. Yeah. So that's what we did. So I spent two years in auto shop with my friends, and we rewired the truck. Uh, we rebuilt the engine, which was that wonderful 235 straight six that they're still manufacturing to this day. It's the longest running uh, tenure for any engine ever manufactured in America, the, the Chevy 235 straight six. They still sell them in South America, apparently, because they're so good. And, uh, and, and I got it all fixed up. And then, you know, it was kind of a cool thing because I went to Palisades High School at the time. And at that time in history, let's say 1983 through 85, uh, the hot car at the time was like the Volkswagen GTI or a Scirocco. Um, you know, the Mustang GT had finally uh, debuted in 83 with a proper V8 for the first time since the, the, the Cobra two piece of crap that they had out forever that <laughs> Farrah Fawcett used to drive in her TV show. Mm -hmm. And that's what all the kids wanted. So when I showed up with this Gardner truck, basically, uh, that, you know, in my freshman year, I just got laughed at every single day. Every time I reversed out of the parking lot and stuff and I would grind and first and reverse, you know, the kids would laugh at me. But over the summer, uh, leading into my senior year, I got the truck finished enough for my uncle's satisfaction. He did the paint job at Earl Scheib, went to Faith Plating there in Los Angeles and, and did all the chrome. And that first day of school in at senior year, it was like a Mr. Miyagi moment. I rolled into school with this gleaming bright red Chevy 3100 five window uh, with wide white wall tires and the hubcaps and the whole thing. Man, it was gorgeous. And, and it was really cool. I definitely had the most styling car at Palisades High School of any kid that was there. And I did it myself, which made me proud. But also, as far as utility, like I said, Matt and I were playing the L.A. clubs all the time. And that truck started every time. It worked for us all the way through our club career and building ourselves up and, and, and uh, getting that first record deal. Um, and, I, and that car really honestly was, was our salvation, not just for me personally, but for making our music and our band. And, you know, I, I basically wound up, after our father died, uh, the last gig that I played as a drummer for, for my band Nelson was on Saturday Night Live. Matthew and I were the only band in history to be the musical guests on SNL without a record deal. And uh, we did that, and we were on the plane home. I decided I wanted to be a guitar player instead and move up front with my brother and do kind of a duo thing. And I took a, a year off to learn how to play guitar, um, which was the time to do that, and I needed to buy a guitar. So the only thing I really had to sell at the time was the truck. Hmm. And I, I sold the truck to my Uncle Mark's best friend, Peter Dabrowski, who lives out there in Brentwood in the Palisades as well, right down the street from Uncle Mark. They were high school best friends and stuff, and, and Peter always loved that. And uh, he took my truck, apparently, and I took the money from that. I bought my first electric guitar with that money. Uh, Peter went, restored the truck, and took it from fire engine red like I had it to something that matched you know, Peter's personality. I, I love the guy, but it's a fire engine beige. It's very <laughs> thoughtful. Now. It's very, very, a, very, there's very, a visual very right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep, very sedate. And, uh, and, and Peter, it's Peter's favorite thing to this day. He's never sold it. He has it. He drives it every chance he gets. He told me I can stop bothering him to buy the car back. He will never say he said he's, he's going to get buried in that truck. I can stop asking. So <laughs> warp forward about, oh, eight months or so ago, Matthew and I were playing in Minot, North Dakota. 
at a place called uh, Norsk Hustfest. It's for freaking Swedes like me. They all congregate there. And Matt and I were doing a gig, and we were driving back to the hotel. And out of the corner of my eye, on the right-hand side of the road, at the Chevy dealership, I saw something that meant, man, it just flashed and looked a lot like my high school truck. And we pulled off into the dealership, and I walked inside, and sure enough, 1952, five-window, in the exact same color that I painted my truck in high school. It was, it was like a deja vu. It looked exactly like my truck, you know, except for the wide whites. And I started a conversation with one of the, the salesmen. He called the man or the owner of the, the, the dealership at home that came down. And I, the timing was right. It was kismet because apparently the, the owner had had the truck in the showroom there in the local Chevy dealership just to attract business for people to come on in. And he said, you know, I've had it here for five years. And I'm, I'm pretty much done with it. You know, now I'm, I'm, I want to move on to other things. And we made a deal on the spot, shook hands on it. And, uh, and I, I split, flew back to Nashville. And I was thinking about that truck and how I was going to get that because winter set in. And I, I realized actually through experience that, you know, I, I've had a lot of cars shipped uh, and enclosed trucks throughout the years. But no one likes going to Minot, North Dakota for some reason. I can't imagine especially, why in the middle of winter. Especially yeah. in the middle of winter. Yeah. I don't know why. I, I got uh, you there. It, yeah. It's such a winter wonderland. Well, yeah, know. that's what I yeah, hear. It, well, it was, well, actually, static temperature was minus 30, you know, <laughs> up there. Oh, and so, freezing, uh, freezing your arms or other body parts. I mean, you know, it, it's the it experience. Was it was crazy, but I wanted to get this truck. And he was nice enough to say, okay, I'm going to put it in storage for you and stuff and in the spring when you... When you can, if you want to send a, a truck or if you want to fly in the, to drive it back down, you can. But Matthew and I found ourselves not that far away from Minot, North Dakota, for our Christmas with the Nelsons tour this past year. And so we, we came up with a plan. The bright idea was to take our, our rental SUV that we had that you're not supposed to trailer anything on, find the only car-carrying U-Haul in a three-state area that was available at the time, hitch it to the back, and drive – I drive from where we were on the Canadian border, five hours to Minot, pick up the truck, and drive it ourselves all the way back to Nashville, not really figuring on the fact that at that particular time of year, that area of the country truly is a block of ice. You're ice skating up there. And, you know, we were, it was one of those bright ideas that looked good on paper and it sounded romantic. And we got into it and realized, man, this is downright dangerous. And we can't, <laughs> well, we, we've got this big, heavy truck that really wants to come through the back window of the SUV we've driven. Uh, we can't stop for crap. We can't drive for crap. We are driving through this one area of highway where apparently a snowstorm blizzard had gone through literally six hours before. We counted 25 semi-trucks that were actually in the ditch or up to, uh, overturned on our route. Yikes. We just decided to film the whole thing. So it was kind of like this epic journey to get, uh, you know, what I called my high school truck, to get it back and – and we have it now. Uh, we, we've successfully made it back to Nashville. Uh, I've got it being worked on right now as we speak by a wonderful mechanic here in Nashville named Mike Mefford. And he works with the American Picker guys okay. on all of their vehicles. Sure. And, he, yeah, he's based out of Columbia, Tennessee. And, I mean, it's taken me forever to find a, a, a fellow car guy mechanic who really gets it. And Mike really does. And he works with Mike Wolf, like I said, from American Pickers on all his motorcycles and, and cars and stuff. And he's just as jazzed to be working on this thing as I am to uh, to, to be getting it and, and driving it and doing all of that. And, uh, and and I'm restoring it exactly the way my truck was 
in high school. With your Uncle Mark, what was his favorite car in his collection? Well, he actually has another 56 Ford F100 big window. He's got one in robin's egg blue. And that's, uh, that's, I think that's his favorite car uh, as far as like his Sunday car. Um, he's got one of the Mercedes supercars. I forgot what that model is. Um, it's about five years old, but it's the one that looks like a spaceship. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, he's got that. Uh, but he, I think he has the most fun. Only my Uncle Mark would do this. My Uncle Mark went to a, a police auction, and he bought a police crown Vic. <laughs> you know, okay, he sounds so more and more like his character on TV. <laughs> oh, no, this is the best. So he's got to do that trek to Valencia for work every morning. He, he gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's got to drive out there in traffic. And, and he went to the police auction, got his crown Vic, and he, he says that his biggest joy is actually getting in the fast lane in the morning. And people see him in the rearview mirror, and they pull over because they think it's a cop car. <laughs> and then when he's driving by, he sees the look on their face when they do a double take. Says, "It's Gibbs driving past him in a cop car." <laughs> NCIS is on in your tail. Well, the funny thing, That's yeah, right. NCIS, yeah, they drive Chargers on on the show, but. I mean, imagine. I mean, we've yeah. done that here where we're, we don't drive those cars, no. but how many times have we seen people driving, you know, yeah. CHP cars on the road? Yeah. It, right. It's it's not uncommon out here at the police auctions to get yes, something I think, like I think that. He's got, I think he's got the most, he, that's what he has the most fun in, is his Crown Vic. That's funny. That's a funny thing. And it fits his persona that he plays on NCIS as well. You know, everything oh, you're talking it, about. It, you know, he still has the flip he still has a flip phone. He doesn't do text messaging. You yeah. know, and there he's driving a Crown Vic and a fifty six Ford pickup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rule number seventeen, never leave home without a knife. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, have you memorized all those rules, by the way? I haven't. I haven't. I do love the show though, and I, I do love my uncle. He's a, a real inspiration. He comes from he's cut from a different cloth. He's one of these guys that is all about character and principles. And he grew up admiring people like Coach John Wooden from UCLA and and uh, and really lives by Coach Wooden's pyramid of success, and he kind of passed that on to my brother Matthew and I. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it makes us relics, but it's I think the through line is he thinks that anything that has a history, especially a vehicle, um, deserves respect, and it, especially if it's surviving as long as, as some of these cars that we're into have survived. You should respect them enough to actually treat them well. You know, there's nothing there's nothing sadder to me than seeing a car that, you know, has a story to it or a, a classic, God forbid, that is just left to rot and be abused. I, I think that uh, I think that's a, a crime. And any any chance I can get to actually take a car back from the grave uh, that's worth that's worth rescuing. I, I try to do or turn somebody else onto it if they're looking for a project. Gunnar Nelson, the third generation of Nelson singers joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Now, if you like this, you're going to like our next show because Gunnar will return to talk more about cars, family, and cars again. That's coming up in part two. Hey, thanks for listening. Please share our show on social media. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. Leave a comment, and if you're on iTunes, rate us and review us. 5.0 is always a nice rating, I think. Uh, thank you in advance for helping our podcast grow. Our website, talkingaboutcars.net. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Of course, the show is on radio.com. Chances are that's where you're listening, or knx1070.com. Remember, 
remember to subscribe again, share, retweet, or both. Until next time, I'm Randy Crudun along with Hot Rod Bob Beck. Join us as we have some fun talking about cars. This is a Two Tired Guys production.